0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank our friends at Movement for their continued support of SpyCast. I'll tell you more about this great company later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we're joined today by Josh Dean, who's a magazine journalist and author. Previously, he was the editor at various magazines, most recently Men's Journal, where he was deputy editor until 2004, when he left to write full-time. Over the years, he's written for dozens of national magazines, including Rolling Stone, Popular Science, Men's Journal, GQ, Travel and Leisure, New York, Entertainment Weekly, and many, many more. Also, outside, where he's currently a correspondent. He was one of the founding editors of Play, the New York Times sports magazine, and is almost certainly the only person in history to play in both the Elephant Polo World Championships and the Quidditch World Cup. His first book, Snow Dog, was released in February of 2012, and his article or e-book, The Life and Times of the Stopwatch Gang, followed thereafter. His newest book, which was just released, is The Taking of K-129, and it is right in the wheelhouse of books we love to talk about here on SpyCast. So thank you, Josh. And welcome to SpyCast. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Happy to be here. So our audience is perhaps more informed about K-129 and the Glowmore Explorer story. Many of them uh, may have read a book or two about it in the past. Some of them may have actually been at CIA when this was happening. So I, I want to ask you the, the kind of the obvious question here, like what, why do we need a new book on this? What makes this book different? what What approach did you take that hadn't been taken before?
1: This is an interesting story because it's it's one of those operation, covert operations that's out there, certainly in the intelligence community's consciousness, and to some extent in the public consciousness, um, especially people over a certain age. I mean, this took place in the 1970s, but it, it's come out in drips and drabs, you know. It was like, high, despite being leaked publicly in a very spectacular manner, it was highly classified for a long time and almost verboten to talk about. So a few books came out in the 70s, and then there was a long period of silence, until um, Paul and White, and then Dave Sharp both put out very good books. Um, forgive me if I don't know the exact years, but I think like 2012, mm-hmm. um, around the time that the CIA declassified a redacted version of the internal history from Center for the Study of Intelligence. Um, and information has continued to trickle out since those books were released. Also, Dave Sharp if you're listening and don't know, was on the mission. He was a deputy uh, for recovery. His was a memoir, very detailed, obviously had to go through the PDB. Right. Um, so he fought the agency very hard, and to his credit won, but I think there were things he wasn't allowed to talk about. Also, it was very much told through his perspective, although he did cover the story from a pretty wide angle. The Polmar and White book it, it is a very naval-focused. I mean, the, those guys really are interested in... Machinery and missiles and ships. And although it does cover the story again from start to finish, I felt like it was a targeted, um, I don't want to say a niche book, but it was a more targeted audience. This is like targeted at the mainstream. This is meant to be the narrative of the story from start to finish. So if you know something about it, but don't really know the story or don't know anything about it, and you pick this up, it's really detailed TikTok narrative starting from the beginning and going. Through the end. Now, that's based on what's available, information that was available to me. But I can tell you, it's certainly the most detailed telling. Um, It covers things that um, Sharp and Palmar wouldn't have gone into, like some of the details about the discovery of the sub and the history of the technologies that made it possible. Um, I think I talk to more people than anyone else has. And certainly, I mean, for me, the biggest test was before I submitted it to my publisher or simultaneously, I sent it to five different people who participated in the mission, and all of them reacted with, well, I learned a lot in this. Hmm. So I think in any compartmentalized story, even if you're on the mission, there are things you don't know. Right. Well, if you're CIA, you don't know a lot about Navy and vice right. versa. If you're a contractor, you're not cleared. You know, I just think this is the wide-angle story told through the characters. Um, you don't need to know intelligence, but I think if you do know intelligence, you'll like it.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I let you struggle long enough without saying that I've read all the other books. Um, we're actually going to have a pretty big Glow-Arm Explorer uh, exhibit at the New Museum. And I can say that it's definitely worth reading this. It, it brings a lot new to the table. Uh, could have said that first, but it was more fun watching you. <laughs> to listen to Trying like, try try to figure out ways, like, how do I convince them, though? No. This is definitely, not only is it, you often find times where, uh, and I want to try to say this without insulting anybody, because if, you, if you're somebody that's been on SpyCast before, we're not talking about you. But there are times when non-intel people write books about intelligence that it falls flat on their face because they just don't have the background and knowledge to do it. In their time, when former spooks write books and they're not great because they're not writers, exactly, they're former intelligence officers. Um, It's it's rare to find a good combination of somebody without the background who actually can write a good intelligence book. And I can say this is one. Um, Thank you. Yeah, and that's that doesn't happen often. Um, So it was good to see. Um, I get sent all sorts of books, and I usually read a chapter or two before I decide, yay or nay. And it was very obvious from the very from the beginning. Uh, that you did your homework, and you, you understand what you 're writing about, so uh, I do recommend this let, let, let's let 's let the audience know a little bit more about uh, your, your level of knowledge by talking about uh, this mission itself let let 's start with the submarine itself and the k one twenty nine the title of the book most people know of this as a Glomar explore story, but it 's really about this submarine um, and, and I think people don 't quite get um, the backstory behind the glomer. Like, oh, yep, yeah, the Soviet submarine vanished. Um, the Soviets couldn't find it, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you do a great job kind of laying out a couple things. One uh, is this wasn't just some rookie crew going out with the K-129. This was an experienced crew with an up-and-coming captain that that really should not have gotten themselves into trouble. Um, but at the same time, the Soviets basically set them up for failure. Uh, they probably shouldn't have gone out. So we can talk a little bit about the mission that eventually dooms k one twenty nine and how it comes to pass
1: yeah so it it was like you said it was a very experienced crew. The captain was actually due to be promoted imminently. I think this was going to be his last mission to to fleet command, and his number two was going to ascend to the captains of of the boat now um the k one two nine had been on combat patrol very recently, and it's not typically. Well, it's definitely not normal for a crew and a boat to have to go back out in short order. But what happened is that um, another Soviet ballistic missile submarine that was scheduled to go to sea on a routine, what they call a routine combat patrol, which is basically go out into the Pacific on some station that will be determined upon opening your orders once you get to sea, sit there with your missiles, and wait for orders. Basically, you know... Uh, Just briefly, for people who don't understand, you know, the the sort of triad, nuclear triad, ballistic missiles on submarines were sort of of land-based ICBMs and uh, bombs dropped by B-52s. Submarines were the most elusive. They were very hard to track. So the point of submarine warfare at that time was to go out to sea with your missiles, don't get detected, and if necessary, shoot them at the enemy. And there was this, you know, I mean, Blind Man's Bluff is a tremendous book about the, quote, cat and mouse games between the Americans and the Soviets where we tried to follow their subs and they tried to follow our subs. And Americans, we spent tremendous amounts of money tracking Soviet submarines. So um, their mission was basically to go out there and just be ready to go to war if necessary. Um, For that reason, they would maintain silence for long periods. They were supposed to not get detected. It was not abnormal that the fleet command would not necessarily know where they were at a given time. It is abnormal that a sub should get lost, um, and certainly that the Soviets didn't find this one. But yeah, it was not an inexperienced crew; a very experienced crew. The the, the boat was I'm not going to say state of the art because actually there were newer models coming along, but certainly its missiles were updated and state of the art. And um, this shouldn't have happened. But the Soviets lost a lot of submarines in accidents that shouldn't have
0: happened. Well, I mean, then they you know the Russians still are. I mean, right. the Kursk was relatively recently. Um, you know, this, the, As you mentioned, this was not supposed to go back out on a mission as quickly as it was. It needed some maintenance. It needed some love. But even under the best conditions, it was a pretty terrible environment <laughs> to be a Soviet submariner, even if you had time to kind of do all the preventative maintenance required in port.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, in general, being on a submarine is pretty terrible. As a guy who sits at a desk, and yeah. I mean, I, I don't mind adventuring a little bit, but I think being in a tube of steel hundreds of feet under the ocean is a pretty rough way of living now the soviets yeah especially rough and this was a diesel submarine so in addition to being cramped and with limited fresh water and probably terrible soviet rations and like smelly bunk mates uh it also just stunk like diesel fuel all the time because diesel submarines nuclear submarines were online at this point but the soviets were still running a lot of diesel electrics so they had to Basically, the way these work is they go to the surface, they run the diesel motor engine to, to charge the batteries to go back underwater and run silently. So they run silent on electric power, but electric power runs out. Right. Um, I think young people today are probably surprised that there was such a thing as battery electric back then. Yeah. It's actually a very old technology, yeah. right? Um, so what was? Yeah, this was not a nuclear submarine which could stay underwater for long periods of time. It had to surface every day. Um, exactly how often I can't remember, but often. Yeah, it was a tough living. And I think one reason you'll find, even during the Cold War, American submariners and, and Soviets, that there was a real respect for each other because it's a tough duty, incredibly demanding, long periods away from your family, dangerous, because, let's be honest, it, there aren't a lot of Purple Hearts on submarine. If something happens, it's bad, right? Yeah, like, there's
0: not a lot of injuries. No, yeah, I mean, you don't...
1: an accident on a submarine typically results in... A very bad outcome for everybody on there have been some survivors. there are not many survivors, um, and this was a period in which accidents on both sides were a problem I mean, thousand nine hundred and sixty eight was a terrible year for so uh, submarine disasters We lost one the French lost one Soviets lost one um, tough tough duty and I think to this day, I have a lot of respect for guys who sub- yeah. serve on the submarine men and women who serve on I assume women can now serve on submarine that 's a question I should probably know. It's tough. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say it's the hardest job in the military, but it's one of the hardest jobs in the military.
0: It certainly takes a certain type of person to do it. I
1: I don't know if this is true, but someone told me that when the Soviets, one of their, um, not one of, the psychology program that they ran, part of the battery of tests whether a person is um, fit to serve on a submarine, the population that they studied to gather the data was actually prisons because it's the only other environment in which people live in such close quarters can't go anywhere right so what happens when you put a bunch of gut? now those are a s- specific kind of person but still
0: yeah even though this was a older submarine it still had pretty extraordinary information on it there were major intelligence possibilities uh that were carried around on this submarine or when it had a disaster were no longer carried around we're stuck at the bottom of the ocean can you talk a little bit about what the united states could hope to gain from grabbing K one twenty nine?
1: Yeah, this is probably the question I get most often from people today who who weren't alive during the Cold War and maybe don't remember well wouldn't remember and don't know much about the stakes of the time. It's like, why would we possibly go to this much effort to grab a wrecked submarine off the bottom of the ocean? And it really requires the context. This audience probably doesn't need much context, but you know when the stakes were Armageddon and, and the way that we uh, prevented nuclear war from breaking out was through detente, you know, was mutually assured destruction, and um, that required both sides to have intimate knowledge of the other side's weapons. So we, as much as possible, you needed to know what they had, where it was, what the guidance systems of the missiles were, what the payloads were, how long they took the fuel to burn to exhaustion, all kinds of things. You know, and the CIA was very good at that period of um, we had other secret programs going where we were stealing nose cones off the bottom of the Pacific using some of the same technology, um, the USS Halibut, which played a big role in this operation. Um, But we we never had a live warhead before. We certainly never had a wholly intact missile. And here was the chance to get three fully intact uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, which would uncover, you know... I'm not a nuclear physicist. Even today, I I spoke to some Livermore veterans, both from during the Cold War and who work today, and they're still very cagey about, even talking about what we would find out in 1974 is dangerous ground for them, because they're like, I can't say a lot about, but let me tell you that, you know, things like the delivery package and the guidance and and the explosives, that that we didn't know any of that. in addition to that, there's cryptology, of course. That's the other big piece of this is, you could get your hands on a Soviet cryptological machine on the submarine, the thing that decoded the codes that came in from fleet command. Now people will say, well, why would that matter? They're just going to change the codes. Yeah, of course they are. But for one thing, it shows you how they're made. Very smart people, much smarter than me, would be able to take that machine and perhaps simulate it Mm -hmm. and... Also, all the things that have been, all the messages that have been intercepted for the past six months or a year, you could go back and read those. And it's not like just because it's old intelligence, it's not good intelligence. You're going to learn a lot of things from that. And then, sort of the most mundane things, though. When I talked to Navy vets, so, some admirals who worked underwater and, and above, they they talked a lot about like. Just general submarine intelligence, like the hull thickness, the right. welds, the where were the valves made, what kind of materials were they using? Like All of that was valuable. Well, so. because at
0: the time, everyone assumed the Soviets were ahead of the Americans right. when it came to submarine construction and technology, so you, you'd find out firsthand whether that was true or not.
1: And I think we found out that they weren't, yeah. But and ultimately that probably we bankrupted the Soviet Union both in the air and under the water, in this race for technology. But yeah, yeah, there was that. I mean, that's kind of a story that repeats itself throughout the Cold War. And again, the CIA again and again disproved things that our leadership believed. They had more bombers. They had better planes. Their missiles flew. Like, in the CIA, and specifically the Director of Science and Technology, I think, are the unsung heroes of the Cold War, and that they came up with all these things, the U-2, the SR-71, the Corona, and the Glomar Explorer, like – that unpacked parts of the Soviet arsenal that we just didn't really understand and right. probably walked us back from the brink of war in a way.
0: Let's talk a little bit about how we found it. You've already kind of hinted at some of these, whether it was AFTAC, which is kind of the nose cone program, also the SOSUS system, where I think our listeners, some of them will know what SOSUS is. It's certainly anyone who grew up in the 80s reading Tom Clancy right. or, <laughs> you know, understands that there, there's an underwater sonar system. Uh, that uh, that helped us to find the K-129, but I think the halibut is it's a r- ridiculously interesting story. And you talk about blind man's bluff, where it it does kind of talk about that. But you know, a lot of times talking about spies and you know whether they're human people, you know, or like you two or the Corona, the halibut I think needs to be. In that conversation, for this revolutionary technology it does. that did so much during this time, whether it's Ivy Bells or finding the Scorpion and Thresher or finding K one twenty nine.
1: Right. I mean, I think this is. I say it's a CIA story. It's it's a CIA and a Navy story, and you know that what that relationship may be soured during the course of this mission. But the first third of the story is very much a Navy story. So it was the Navy that found the K-129. Uh, well, with some help from the Air Force. So the, like you said, SOSUS was a Navy program. AFTAC was an Air Force program. AFTAC ultimately located, pinpointed the location of the sub using anomalies in the acoustic analysis, basically sounds on. They were used to listening to the ocean and they knew what was anomalous and what was not, right? I mean, we discovered the sounds of blue whales through AFTAC, I and mean, there's so much fascinating things happened during this era. But once we pinpointed it, that's useful, but but who knew what shape it was in? You had to go and look at right. it. And it was 16,500 feet down. There was nothing on the planet at that time that could get even close to that to film it and you know look at it, film it, listen to it, bring back pictures, except that because of some submarine disasters, like you mentioned, there was an active program within the Navy, a deeply black, covert, deep sea program that led to the development of the USS Halibut, which was a you know special project submarine, um, a spy sub, run by a secret division within the Navy that wasn't even, most people in the Navy couldn't have told you existed, basically. John Craven is the scientist who led the development of the thre- uh, Thresher, of the, the Halibut Became somewhat controversial figure, but brilliant, brilliant civilian scientist, the chief civilian scientist, and so he took a, a an old well, the the uh, Regulus class launched cruise missiles for the first time underwater. Quickly became obsolete, but that it, because of the the mechanism by which it launched cruise missiles, it had this big like mouth that opened on the top of it, and Craven looked at it and said, "Wait, that would be a great place to put like a hub for." various intelligence activities. I could use that to put a bunch of spies in there, NSA analysts, and we can deploy technologies that will film the bottom of the ocean. So basically, the secret sub went out there and, like you said, led a number of incredible missions, um, Ivy Bells being the other most famous one probably and probably the one that yielded more intelligence than anything. But, yeah, uh, the nose cone recovery programs. And then later the – I can never remember if it's pronounced parka or parch – the Halibut successor mm-hmm. – just picked up where that left off so yeah these are submarines that until blind man's bluff no one knew about wow. um they and even today the funny thing about this story is that the cia has been quite forthcoming in the way that the cia is forthcoming about anything which is <laughs> like we want to talk about it but we don't want to tell you too much you know but we won't stand in your way the navy is oddly to this day doesn't talk about the hell of it like that part of the Underwater Reconnaissance Office program is still secret. And within the CIA history of Azorian, the largest redacted section is the section that's clearly about the Halibut. There's like a four page blackout where you're like, okay, I know this is where the Halibut comes into the story. Right. It goes out and it films the K 129, brings that film back, and thus begins Azorian. That's blacked out. Now, I don't know why the Navy, you know, in the Navy, I know because I talked to the guy at NCIS who. Who went to Craven and urged him not to publish a book that he ultimately published, but the parts where he talks about Azorian and some of the other um, Halibut programs, he reports them, he writes about them as if this has been reported in the press. He never says, I did this or right. this happened. So, yeah, I don't know why the Navy continues to be. Certainly, I mean, there have been plenty of books about it at this point. Like, we all know the Halibut. There's right. pictures of it, yeah. right? Like, um, I don't know. It's, it's strange, but it deserves, yeah, it's a historic Ship that did a lot of service to the United States and, and great triumphs of the Cold War because of the Halibut.
0: We've, we've brought up a couple people. Let's bring up another one, John Parangosky. uh He is central to this story, and it's probably a name very few people have heard of. You can you talk a little bit about? It because he basically worked on everything.
1: He did. Yeah. But I mean, by design, you haven't heard of him though. Yeah. If he worked. At the CIA in the 60s and 70s, and certainly within Director of Science and Technology, you know. I mean, he's on, he was, he's in that list of 50 trailblazers. But yes, by design, he worked in the shadows his whole life. I mean, that's what the life of an intelligence officer was and, and probably still should be. Isn't always, but should be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was. Um, Started his career on the U2 program, well, didn't start his career, started to make his name on the U2 program. He commanded a base, one of the detachments in Turkey, came back to headquarters, quickly rose through the ranks, and when the S&T was forming, he became one of um, Bissell and Duckett's favorite managers, basically. I mean, I hate to call him a manager, it seems like such a pedestrian middle management thing to say, but he was a program manager, and he, though he didn't start U2, he ended up being instrumental in its um, rollout, he then did lead the development of Oxcart, the SR seventy one, oh A twelve. Later, the SR seventy one. Only the
0: CIA gets annoyed when you call it the SR seventy one. Everybody else is perfectly fine right. if you don't call it the A twelve. Yes, you it's call the SR seventy one. People are like what's that? Yeah.
1: you're like, oh, it's the Blackbird. Oh, the Blackbird. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you know, and in and in a way, you could trace so much of the S and history could be traced through Parangowski. The development of uh, Area fifty one, which was for the testing of U two. Later, the Blackbird corona, and then when this project came up, a completely unique undersea, because at that point the S&T had been focused in space well, or orbit planes that go high and see far Um, here was a big boat that needed to be built or something that could get to the bottom of the ocean And, and I think Carl Duckett looked around and thought I know who who's the guy to do this, right? It's John Perangoski. and he was a lifelong bachelor, mysterious figure. Even his friends claimed to not know much about him. I mean, I reconstructed him to the, to the best that I could. He's no surviving family. Um, people were like, "I only went to his apartment once, and it was empty." Or you know, he wore the same right. clothes every day. He went to the same restaurants every day. I mean, he's a very—he almost seems like a fictional character. Right. But and you know, and those who knew him. Or who were in the program and occasionally saw him, he was like this ghost. They called him Mr. P or JP, and he would just kind of come in and then leave. Fan a yeah,
0: fictional character that helped develop the U two, the SR seventy one Corona, and then oh, that's the it, ca- yeah, and then the Glomar Explorer, and, and, I,
1: and I, you know, probably one of a tiny number, if not the only person who is in the CIA's fifty Trailblazers and the um, NRO National Reconnaissance Office, whatever the equivalent of the NRO yeah. is, basically superstars of the agency and the NRO.
0: Let's shift focus to a company now because they're, they're, when Perengoski might be the only person to actually manage this. There was only one company around that could actually build the kind of craft <laughs> necessary to do this. You know, the name Glomar comes from the company Global Marine. Talk a little bit about them because you make the point, and I think you're not wrong. I think others have kind of hinted at this, that there's no other company on Earth that could have built the ship that turns into the Glomar Explorer.
1: Yeah, and I think that's quite literally true, and I'm not even sure anybody would attempt to to mount an argument against it. That if you needed something, well, when it was determined that the CIA needed a ship that could deploy some kind of equipment that could reach 16,000 feet under the ocean and pick up an object that weighed 2 million pounds, so far beyond a depth that anything had ever been attempted, like, there weren't recoveries done at 2,000 feet, let alone 16,000 feet. Well, Global Marine, which was a a spinoff of some oil companies, you know, Curtis Crook, who's another of the main characters, he was the lead at at Global Marine who ran the project. He told me that at that time, he would compare it to kind of a Silicon Valley. It was like startup-y, full of brilliant young engineers Mm -hmm. who were like given the money and space to do whatever they wanted. And that's what the s and was about, was about finding people who could do that. Right? Who were the best people in America? Literally, at any company, they were given access to CEOs and, and boards of directors. and um, Find the one person or the one company, and that was Global Marine. Global Marine had, had begun deep sea drilling. Um, they built a ship that did the Mohole project in which uh, they created a system so that a ship could stay stationary in the ocean. Deploy a drill, drill deep into the floor of the ocean, pull the drill back out, put it back in the same hole. Now that may seem easy, it's really not easy, (laughs) right? Because the ocean—if you've been on the ocean—you know the ocean doesn't sit still. Your boat kind of like bounces around, and so this is before satellite positioning. So they had to—you know—they're using long line positioning with acoustics, and and eventually satellite came on and was used during the Glomar, but it wasn't—it wasn't satellite positioning systems in the way you imagine them today. So basically, this was a company that could build huge ships that could do big, dirty, heavy jobs, but also precise, complicated engineering. And this was going to require engineering like nothing that had ever been done, and perhaps isn't still not been done to this day. I'm not sure anything like the ship will ever be built again, and certainly it hasn't been
0: equaled. Well, you used the phrase, never been attempted, about 15 times. That's yeah. true for like, just about every single part. I was like, how, how, how uh, else uh, can I say this? Yeah, Sorry. no, I mean, it, it's, it gets redundant, but because just about every single aspect of this mission had never been attempted before.
1: And it all had to work on the first... There was no time to test anything, right. so it basically had to work right away.
0: Well, just, you couldn't... I mean, we're going to talk about the cover story in a right. second, but there's no way to test it and maintain any kind of cover, because... You know, let's talk about that now because the idea is you can't just build a ship and go grab it and let everybody know what you're doing because it could either be construed as an act of war or, uh you know, even if it wasn't, you are – this is a covert clandestine intelligence operation where you're trying to get this information with the Soviets not knowing you're trying to get this information, not just the Soviets trying to make sure the United States and everybody else doesn't know what you're doing. And that's when they bring in – Another interesting personality that most people have heard of. Um, And at first, people may go, Howard Hughes, that makes no sense. But it actually makes the most sense you can possibly think of because not only was he a quirky personality, but he's the kind of guy who has the money to spend on a project like this that has absolutely no track record of working because there's just everything's unprecedented.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, it's in the way that Global Marine was the only company that could have done this, Howard Hughes was the only person who could have provided cover. Because as you said, when you build a giant ship and you're going to take it out into the middle of the ocean, it's going to do something complicated. It's not like you can go out in the middle of the night. And pull. It's not like a Navy SEAL raid where you just, like, parachute in, yeah. extract somebody. This was going to be extremely visible from satellites and boats and planes and whatever. So it's sort of like, okay, we figured out how to get it. Now what do we do? Because we're going to go out there to a remote corner of the Pacific where a ship like this wouldn't normally be operating, and it's going to sit there on station in an area that might be suspicious to the Soviets because, oh, by the way, they lost a submarine out there, and who knows what it is. So we have to be able to explain that to the Soviets who are going to be watching. We have to explain it to the public. You know, What do we do? Well, someone came up with the idea of, why don't we say we're ocean mining? Because this was an idea that had been proposed, I think Going back to the 50s, that there were these things called manganese nodules that accumulate over time on the bottom of the ocean, and they contain rare earth minerals. They're between the size of a blueberry and up to well, they they can get quite huge. Typically, it's like a potato size, and you can re- recover these and extract minerals. So, arguments are not arguments. Discussions were ongoing about how do we get them? Is there a feasible method for harvesting? Do we process? So. It made sense that somebody might do that. It's now, like today
0: people talk about asteroid mining, right? I mean, kind of the same. Yeah, it's like a speculative idea. Speculative idea, but yeah.
1: it was would have been hugely expensive, and nobody was ready to try it. There were some tests ongoing, but then you know, there's debate within the CIA and Global Marine about whose idea this was. Both sides take credit for this. Um, Curtis Crook swears it was him. That they said, "What about Howard Hughes?" Because. We know we need a company because we can't say the CIA is going ocean mining. We can't even say the U.S. Navy. We can't, it can't be a U.S. government project because automatically that looks like the CIA. It's got to be a company. Well, it can't be a public company because what are you going to tear the shell? You can't lie to shareholders. You're breaking SEC law, and this comes up later. You can't – also, they would never go for it. They're like, okay, this sounds risky. Like, what if this all blows up and we start a war? That's great for our PR, right? right. <laughs> General Electric starts Armageddon. Um, so, they needed a private company, and then they're sort of like, well, Howard Hughes, now that guy's crazy, rich, eccentric, and has a mining background. Like, perfectly, like, the, in the way, you know, so many other things lined up perfectly. Here's the guy who nobody would doubt it. Also, Howard Hughes would go mining.
0: Yeah, he also has a, a track history of working with the U.S. government on clandestine operations. Right.
1: So, both sides. He makes yeah. sense to the public. Within leadership, he's a guy who supported the CIA, and he's a loyal patriot. You know, so you assume going in that he's probably going to say yes. Uh, everything lined up. And, and though there's one of the many mysteries of the story that remains today is how involved he was, it seems very clear that he was not intimately involved on a daily basis. I think he was aware of it. He probably gave his approval. He was also hopped up on pills in a hotel room in Las Vegas, watching, like, old movies, watching himself, yes. soiling himself in diapers. So... Um, he was aware, but he had people running his empire. I mean, his lieutenants were definitely the quote-unquote Mormon mafia who ran his companies were very, very involved. And um, it just lined up. Global Marine was perfect. Howard Hughes was perfect. It just all came together.
0: Well, someone else that, that, that seemed to be an uh, indispensable personality is someone that had worked with Perangoski on the U-2, the SR-71, on Corona, uh, doing counterintelligence work, or at least cover story work, and that's Walt Lloyd. Uh, who plays such an integral role in this. Um, And he is uh, kind of the the consummate professional in making people think things are going along perfectly fine and nothing to see here, please look in a different direction.
1: Yeah, one of the most unflappable professional people I've ever met, retired now living in Arizona and um, got a little bit of, attention a few years ago when the story behind the Glomar exemption which maybe we'll talk about later Mm -hmm. came out he was a lawyer he was a a career security guy who worked on like you said all of those programs always within covert he you know it's impossible to say he's the guy who created the model but he's one of the most instrumental figures in the creation of a, a covert operation like what it means to do something and say you're doing something else um, well, and, I mean,
0: Area 51 comes to mind in this case, too, right. since he worked on all these programs and the kind of the cover story.
1: Totally. And, well, and going back to the U-2, it was like it was a weather observation yeah. plane. Right. And I have some anecdotes in there where, you know, he was out there telling the people that that's the story. And he was working with the which was then the NACA, NASA, today about like this is your weather observation plane. Yeah. Go out and tell people about your the weather you're observing yeah. over Ukraine. Uh so he he was a specialist in this kind of thing also a lawyer and just a really straight-laced professional smart guy who Perengoski I think um respected greatly and and thought who do I need to oversee the cover story oh it's got to be Walt and now the cover story was already happening it had been determined it wasn't his idea it was already being architected but he was brought in to say okay I think the quote from him is, when he said, John, what do you want? He's like, you're the one who's going to explain this to the world, right? You need to be, when anyone questions this, you're not directly going to answer it, but somebody that you've put in place is going to answer it. So then he became, he oversaw the cover story, you know, the department that was the cover story. I mean, it was a real group of people. Well, and they,
0: they did a lot. I mean, they used the media against the public, basically, you know, kind of by not just leaking information, but setting up kind of, extravagant media shows right. I have cl- to make them look in the wrong direction. I
1: have stacks of clips about Howard Hughes's, you know, speculative mining venture. Like science magazines wrote about it. The oil industry I mean, there were other companies that reacted to this and thought like, oh wait, should we be ocean mining? Like yeah. the UN debate broke out at the UN because the landlocked nations of the world felt like, oh wait, the oceans are the shared resource of humanity. Just because we don't have a coast or a navy or, or a um, seafaring fleet we should benefit Americans shouldn't get to harvest the ocean so this huge debate breaks out the law of the sea conference starts I mean there's so many things there's like there's so many Forrest Gump elements of this like where it's like uh, just happened because this mission started and and so Walt was his job was to keep an eye on the public make sure like anticipate any problems that might pop up if you start to see a crack in the facade figure out a way you know Find us experts who can talk about it, and there was a group um, led by a, a, a former German U-boat um, work. He wasn't a cap. He's sometimes described as a captain, but he wasn't. But uh, a guy who worked on U-boats during the war, then ran a, a shipyard in Poland, emigrated to South America, came to America, uh, named Manfred Krutine, and he was one of the few ocean mining experts in America. It had become his obsession. So. They hired him to be, like, the face of it. You're the guy. You go to conferences and when you get presentations. They sent him to conferences to get those. <laughs> like, think of pa- PowerPoints today. Yeah. You know, he had, like, stand-ups with them. You know. And he. the thing is, he believed in it. He wanted to go ocean mining. He hired some people, um, including Dave Pasho, who's a geologist who's now working up in Canada, who was very helpful to me. Um, their job was to go out and explain this, but they weren't lying. Like, they, this was a real idea. They all believed in it. They felt like they could do it. Now, of course, they weren't really doing it, and that points became a problem where I think various people, including Walt, were were like, well, we need to do some things that really look like mining because we're not ultimately going to be mining. So they did stage a mining trip where they sent out, refitted a ship, went out into the Pacific, pretended to be testing prototype machines, brought up nodules, put them in plastic, and gave them out to people at parties, you know, like... They, the extent to which the cover story was you know it was impressive and it it held for five years. Right. I mean that's the testament here is that there were cracks, but it really held up for a long time.
0: Well, there were little problems they had to deal with like the labor disputes <laughs> and tax problems. You know, trying to explain to an LA tax collector why he doesn't get millions of dollars <laughs> from this massive ship that really wasn't owned by who he thought it was owned by. Yeah, you know, it was
1: you know, in all of that. It's sort of like the mundane of bureaucracy or, like, just a free market. You know, if you think about the difference between the Soviet Union and the U.S., like, it's easy for the Soviets to do things in secret. I mean, that's why they spy. you know, their human efforts were so much more effective than ours because you can do whatever you want in the U.S. You come here and walk around as a Russian spy, it's very easy to, like, just recruit people. But like, you go to the Soviet Union as an American or a Soviet who's been turned, like, good luck. Right. Well, it's same thing here. It's like, well we have state governments, we have local governments, we have agencies within the federal, even though the CIA was and still is to this day very careful to like make sure everything's done according to book. Like this is not a budget that's unaccountable, right? They clear people at the IRS, they clear people at SEC if necessary. They you know, very various congressmen are cleared. Still things happen in the yeah, like for instance, this tax collector in LA. He was a grandstander, Philip Watson, and, and he saw this giant Howard Hughes ship getting media, and he's like, wait, they didn't pay taxes to me? It's, you know, I, I'm going to go and, like, have a press conference and say, like, I deserve money from that. Well, the CIA had, had to then figure out a way to shut him up. Again, that became Walt's problem, because he was a lawyer, and this was part of his purview. You know, they had to clear. Ultimately, when his as high as John Warner, who was the CIA's chief counsel, had to go out there and basically say, dude, shut up, yeah. right? You know, and he wanted, like, you know, he was. Yeah, you know, and again, this is kind of a triumph of our system, I guess, that like a local official can feel so empowered that he can say to the chief legal counsel of the CIA, like, unless you give me a piece of paper, nope, not right. doing it, right? Like, that's a good and a bad thing. You know, it's good that we have the freedom to do that and provide some accountability. On the other hand, like that guy could have ruined it for
0: everybody. Well, it's. Good. I mean, the, the the fact is, they're trying to do this extraordinary mission of raising this submarine, and they had to think of these day to day things like. We need to go out into international waters to physically transfer the title right. of the ship, so that we won't have to pay the taxes on actually transferring the title. So they had the ceremony out right. in international waters, so that they didn't run into this massive tax bill. Right, and all the moving parts on this just—it wasn't just. Can you build a ship that can lift the yeah. submarine?
1: So much more than engineering, and and even you know sort of covert officer action goes into these making these things work. And again, that was like. Wall of people who worked with them, want to do everything the right way. They're like, we don't want the American taxpayer to have to pay a huge tax bill that they shouldn't rightly have to pay. Right. But on the other hand, it's very hard for us to explain to these people why they aren't going to pay it. You know, it's like you're beholden to the intelligence community to keep a secret. You're also beholden to the American taxpayers to not waste their money. And you have to follow procedures like local and state governments, you know, and he that required, yeah, staging this. They had to go out into the international waters and transfer ownership from uh, Global Marine to Hughes. Or, yeah, yeah, makers of the ship to owner of the ship. Owner of the ship, I put in quotes, because Hughes didn't really own the ship, right. right, of course. It was a U.S. government ship. And ultimately, that's what they had to explain to this tax man was this is a U.S. government ship, but it's not a U.S. government ship, if you know what I'm saying. right? <laughs> right.
0: We'll I have more with Josh in just one moment, but let me take a minute to tell you about movement. Movement Watches, spelled M-V-M-T, but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality, minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 1 million watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. The story of this company's beginning is pretty amazing, and as someone who has worked to use word of mouth and social media to build SpyCast brand, I really took to this story. As I've told you before, in 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Now, I'm not one to advocate this, because as always, stay in school, kids. But tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second highest crowdfunded fashion brand in 2013. And since 2013, they've really come far. The watches are gorgeous in both men's and women's watches. I've told you this several times now, but when I went on their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out in my office about which one looked best. And even though I eventually would choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. The great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Movement watches start at just $95. At department stores, you're looking at at least $400 to $500 for this kind of quality watch. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman and retail markup, providing the best possible price. Talking classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And don't forget, over 1 million watches sold in over 160 countries. So you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com slash spycast. That's M-V-M-T dot com slash spycast. Look well, the watch I have is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments on it ever since I put it on. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com slash spycast. Join the movement. Well one thing no matter how good Walt Lloyd was, that would be impossible to explain in public, is the capture vehicle or the claw. Um, that would be pretty obvious to anyone, even a novice in ship engineering, that you're not picking up manganese modules with a claw the size of a semi truck, right. um, <laughs> and uh, and so that the the artfulness behind creating the cover, or that the secrecy behind the claw I thought was, is extraordinary as well. And that might be a story people know, but if not, you can talk a little bit about Clementine uh, and how they were able to manufacture this capture vehicle.
1: Yeah, I mean, the engineering is so elegant and impressive and audacious. I, mean, I, there's, I ran out of adjectives to use because it's just like, you know, even by today's standards, like every piece of this thing was so involved and incredible. So, yeah, they, just, they determined that something called the grunt lift method would be used, whereas they were actually going to just go down, pick it up, pull it back up to, to like I said, 2 million pound piece of steel on the bottom of the ocean, pull it 16,000 feet up. So you really needed something that could grab it. And, you know, a claw is how it's always described. It, you know, you can almost picture like a hand. It had fingers. Well, most people
0: have played the game at like, oh, yeah, you right. know, Chuck E. Cheese totally. or something with like the claw game to go after the basketball. Well, this it, is exactly you know. it's,
1: it's that method. Exactly. And, and, and just about that heart. Yeah. Uh, but like you said, you can't build that in public. You know, you're building the ship in public. It's a mining ship. It's got this gimbal derrick. That makes sense. There's a big hole in the moon pool in the bottom because that's the way that you're going to deploy the quote-unquote miner. Now, the miner couldn't be seen because it was a claw. But the way you explain that to the public is like, well, that's our competitive advantage. Howard Hughes doesn't want anybody to see what his miner looks like because then what's to stop the other companies from just copying him? Which is a totally plausible explanation. Yeah. But Meanwhile, you got to build this giant claw. So... They constructed the largest uh, barge ever built, a submersible barge that is the size of like a basketball arena, um, floated it up to Redwood City near San Francisco Airport, and then Lockheed Martin, well, Lockheed Ocean Systems, which had been hired to do the CLAW, which had a long history of the CIA. They built right. U2 and. Lockheed's been months. around yeah. for a while. Like a good-
0: Perhaps you've heard of them. Yes.
1: Um, they sailed the barge up there and built the claw inside the barge. It, it served as a way to hide the construction and also as a way to deliver that construction to the Glomar Explorer, ultimately. Because once you built it, you had to get it on the ship with no one seeing it. At every stage, it had to be
0: hidden. Well, was, and You glossed over this, the whole idea. It is the size of the Verizon Center. It yeah, is. It, this is a, a barge that sinks completely underwater <laughs> the size of a basketball stadium.
1: Exactly. And, so, and basically, they build the claw inside of it. You sail it under the Golden Gate, down the Pacific to Catalina, where the Glomar Explorer built in Philly, moved to Long Beach, then went out to Catalina, and in public, in a cove, you know, with media around, and there's a great picture, I couldn't get the rights for my book, but there's a great picture of Catalina Beach with, like, sunbathers, and in the background is the Glomar Explorer just sitting there. And the barge sinks to the bottom of the ocean, the... Glomar Explorer parks over top of it. The bottom of the ship opens. The top of the barge opens. And um, the the docking legs, which are these giant, um, well, they're legs that go out through the bottom of the ship, lock to the top of Clementine, pull it back into the bottom of the ship, close the bottom of the ship, close the top of the barge. Ship sails away. Barge sails away. Now it's inside. Nobody's seen it. The only way you could see what happened is if you were underwater. And, of course, the one thing that was secured, I mean, there were, like, Navy SEALs in the water. Mm. Uh, there were... Again, never acknowledged by the Navy, but there were seals. There were um, guys in boats, security officers in boats, keeping people away. But from a distance, people watched that and they thought, "Oh, that's how Howard Hughes got his mining machine on the Glomar Explorer." Yeah, and it worked. I mean, it worked.
0: <laughs> I, and, and as many many months that went into building this ship, when they actually sail out on the mission, they're essentially re-engineering things on the fly. They're basically in the time it takes to sail from California out into the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they're rebuilding the inside of the Glomar Explorer as they go.
1: Basically everything broke at some yeah. point. And it broke throughout the mission, all at every step. And that's, you know, the, the people on the ship were the guys who built... So, you had Lockheed engineers, you had West the Western Gear guys who built the heavy lift system and worked on um, various pieces of... the. You had uh, electricians from Lockheed, you had engineers from Global Marine, you had a huge crew of Roughnecks who had worked on oil ships. I mean, I think this is what happens on it's brute force work. It's oil and ham- noise and steel, and things break constantly. And that's what roughnecks do—they fix things. And in addition, you had the naval engineer who designed the ship. You know, the architects were there. So if something broke, you had the right guys on board. But they had to build it under incredibly stressful or fix it under stressful conditions. You're racing the calendar because there was a limited window in which they could do this because weather in that part of the Pacific is incredibly inclement. And basically, you have a month or six weeks. And if you don't do it, then you wait a whole other year. Right. So the pressures from Langley and Washington are tremendous. The pressures on the ship are tremendous. And then, like, something huge breaks. And you got to fix it in the middle of things, right? And it and they did it. And the guys, you know, a lot of them are still around and uh, just did amazing work under tremendous conditions. Well, it, they, they
0: should have had two or three times as much time to build this ship and test it and do everything. But exactly. you and, can't and, maintain the cover story for nope. another year.
1: And I think that was... You know, Perengoski was lived in constant fear that the story would leak for good reason, yeah. right? You can imagine how many people were cleared into this over the course of five years. Probably, certainly hundreds, and probably thousands. Now, did everybody have full clearance? No, but a lot of them did. All the all the roughnecks on the ship had full clearance. They go to bars, they get drunk, they talk, they're like picking up girls. Like any one of them could have ruined this. And so, you if you're in management on the project, you're in fear of that. So it's like we need to do this. It's got to work the first time. No pressure, guys.
0: Right. Yeah, and the whole time they're out there, they're being harassed uh, by Soviet ships who know something's going on. They don't know what, um, you know, whether they're uh, spy trawlers stealing their trash (laughs) as, you know, they realize that they were down current from the boat, Um, you know, or even looking like they're going to ram the ship or deploy divers or any of these things to try to figure out what's going on. There's a constant hardship and there was even conversation about putting a full platoon of marines on board in case they were boarded you know and they finally decide to uh put some weapons on there even though they're a bunch of engineers i don't know what they were going to do with those if they did get boarded by the soviet navy
1: well yeah i mean you know dci colby tried to insist that they put a platoon of marines on board and and the security team was just like how will we explain that (laughs) if somebody why would howard use have a platoon of marines it just isn't going to work and ultimately, you know, acceded that point, but insisted that the security team bring in some kind of weapon. So they had some rifles that had their own cover story. They were like skeet. They had like, they brought on skeet equipment so they could say, oh, this is just for target practice. And indeed, they used them, I think, for fun. But uh, yeah, the Soviets were right off the ship numerous times. Two different ships, one a clear spy vessel, one of, you know, indeterminate origin and purpose, came around and harassed the Glomar Explorer launched a helicopter that flew over, took a bunch of pictures, and the conversation on board was certainly what do we do if they board? Uh, And they had a bunch of methods in place that were sort of like, well, even a private ship would not welcome that necessarily. So we'll, we'll obviously trash all that. There was a very sophisticated system in place to get rid of all the classified material. But had they gotten on board and taken over the ship, yeah, clearly you couldn't hide the claw. And if you got into the communications van, you were going to get a hold of things. They can, you can trash the paper. You can smash some of the systems. Certainly we learned from the loss of the Pueblo that there are, we needed to be better at destroying classified information. Um, but no one on the ship really knows. And to this day, we're not totally sure what would have happened. You know, I've, I talked to Bobby Ray Inman, who was at ascent to Hawaii. To run the intelligence for Pacific Fleet, Pearl Harbor, I talked to Bob Frosch, who ran Neuro, the underwater reconnaissance office. None of them are totally sure what the plan was. It doesn't seem like anybody knows exactly what the plan was. People
0: it, were paying it. To, I mean, the NSA was tracking the communications from yeah. the ships back home. The sea.
1: Guys on the ship yeah. didn't know that, yeah. but yes, like we were aware of what was happening. And Inman said, you know, that they were fairly certain that that. Even the intelligence ship didn't really know. They were listening to what they were saying. I could hear what they were saying to fleet command, and they were saying, It's a Howard Hughes ship. Now, there's a Soviet um, retired, and I'm not sure if he's still living, but an um, intelligence officer from their fleet command who insists that he tried to tell everybody, That's an American ship. It's trying to steal the submarine. Please listen to me. I swear I'm right. And he wrote a book later and said no one listened to him. They kept saying, shut up. Like, because...
0: And in the Soviet way, he was the only one who was fired for... for of course. Exactly. This. Yeah, once it yeah. came
1: out, of course, he got fired. They're like, you should have told us. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he says that what they told him, and, you know, and there was a lot of, like, grudging respect from the Soviets later was, that can't be true. Like, there, there's no way that the Americans can steal a submarine. How would they do that? Right. You can't pick up an object off the bottom of the ocean 16,000 feet down. So there was, it was real plausible deniability on our part. And even when an intelligence guy is jumping up and down saying, I just have a hunch about that, they're saying, there's no way. It just can't be true. And so uh,
0: to take the big chunk of, like, the middle of the book and ha- what happens is most people understand that we clawed the submarine, <laughs> we brought it almost all the way up, and then disaster struck... And it broke in half, or half is a kind of general term. It broke, it broke apart, yep. and we got some of it, but not all of it. Um, and the CIA to this day refuses to say how much we got. Um, there, you know, the information from all the books, including yours, is not confirmed whatsoever by the agency. Um, you know, they 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 now confirm that the mission happens. Yep. But even talking to people at CIA will say you're never going to get that answer from us, what they actually... So let's talk about the take right. from what we can, ha, what? Ha, have a conversation about what we think we know.
1: Well, the only thing they've officially acknowledged was a nuclear-tipped torpedo, which I think at the time we didn't know that they even had. That's something that could sink a aircraft carrier, kind of valuable to know. So they would have gotten one piece of, of um, exploding nuclear hardware. Um, they confirmed or... I can't remember, I don't know if, actually, maybe this isn't officially confirmed. Stories came out from an official source, probably a a mission participant who leaked it, that a a journal was found in the bunk of a Soviet missile officer that probably was, we don't know exactly what it was, but seems to have been very valuable, valuable enough that they flew it home right away. It was one of the first things taken off the ship in Hawaii. Um, Like I said earlier, I talked to some Navy guys who said, even with the failure we considered that to be a success because we learned a lot about submarine construction. Now the guys on the ship who were there kind of remember it differently. They a lot of them feel kind of disappointed still that like if you were there and experienced the sort of um, I don't joy I guess probably was joy of the, it all worked like we got the thing and they, it's five thousand feet off the floor. Nothing can go wrong at that point, right? Everybody relaxes and then it breaks. So for those people, it's very hard to see anything as a success because they go and look and they're like, oh, well, great, we got part of it. But we didn't get the part with the ballistic missiles and we didn't get the cryptological equipment. Um, Is it possible that some of that came up and it's all been lied about? It is possible, but um, it's hard for me to believe that something as big as a missile could have been covered up. And I think I talked to enough people who walked through the wreck who said, you know, I don't know what we could have gotten from it. It just looked like a big tangled mess of steel to me. But And, and then I even talked to um, some Livermore weapons programs veterans who said, you know, we did learn quite a bit from it. I can't tell you what we learned. But just for instance, there were isotopes detected within the, they were, you know, right. if, if you're a nuclear physicist, you can learn a lot from the isotope. It can tell you, you know, what the fizzle material is, I think. And um, I don't totally understand how that works. Right. So, I can't explain to you how that works, but it was deemed a success by a lot of people. And I think the cover, it's hard to deny that the cover story can't be viewed as a success. Like, they pulled this thing off, right? And we're going to go back. Like, they planned to go back and get the rest. Yeah, and
0: then then the cover story begins to fall apart a little bit. And and that's kind of how I want to wrap this up to a degree. Um, What's interesting to me is people may know the name Seymour Hirsch or Cy Hirsch, who is. I think he would describe himself as a muckraking journalist, uh, who, even though he throws a lot of garbage at the wall that doesn't stick, he is legendary for uncovering things like the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, like Abu Ghraib, uh, more recently, um, some of the key scandals of the 1970s dealing with, uh, both military and intelligence operations have a whole lot to do with him. Uh, and he actually was the first one on this story yeah. uh, but interestingly he sat on it which he, you don't think of when you think <laughs> of Cy
1: Hirsch. you don't yeah yeah he was le- it was leaked to him at a party you know someone one of his sources and he was deeply sourced i mean a dogged tenacious tough reporter who i think wore people down and also at that time had a very good record of of rigorous reporting and um people at least certain people respected him. He got leaks at that time. Somebody told him that this was uh, this was going on. And when he told... He knew Colby, DCI Colby at that time. I mean, everybody knew Slyhurst. So it, they had a um, conversation about... It got back to Colby that he knew, basically. They had a meeting. Colby said, If you can sit on this, I'll give you the story when when it all happens, basically. And some of those other things that you're interested in, maybe I can help you with those things, too. Because really what the story he was more after at the time was the spying on the anti-war protester. He, he was convinced and later proved to be true that the CIA was involved to some degree in spying on Americans, which is against his charter, obviously. That's a much bigger story to him than this. Right. Though this is big and flamboyant, you know, he felt that was more important. So Colby assured him... It will be worth your while, and also this is very important, and if you blow it, you could ruin this huge operation. You could maybe start a war. You know, the stakes, it's, it's not absurd to say that this is, like, the kind of thing that could perhaps start a war, right? right? It could have. Um, I don't think it's crazy to suggest that. So Colby was able to impose upon him to sit on it, and he did. He agreed. And, yeah, I think people who only know Psy as this, like, stubborn muckraker are probably find it hard to believe but it's true he did and, well, he, and
0: colby was ex- exceptionally good at keeping just about everybody quiet yeah. i mean we'll talk washington post and new york times and all the l.a times these major newspapers where I, i'm not sure people understand the personal connection that colby had with the editors of these these and publishers just kind of pick up the phone and be like look you know you need to this is again think time period wise this is right after watergate Right. When very few of these these major publishers are willing to do any kind of favors for CIA, and
1: I think faith in CIA at that time was probably you know not high. And it's maybe similar to some, some of the recent times where the public and the media has been very skeptical of CIA and, and its honesty with the public. And I, yeah. So here's DCI calling editors of major newspapers shortly after Watergate and saying. Could you not run that store that like explosive story that I know that you know something about? Um, just because you could really cause problems for us, you know. And I think, you know, the media is not out to, despite what some people say, is not out to like do damage to the country or start a war, right? I think they're looking to uncover abuses of, of government. But I think you could probably make the case, and I bet it still happens today, where you know a DCI or someone at Pentagon can say, "Listen, I know you have the information, but." don't run it for this reason. And then you can clear that editor for that time to say like, here's the reason you can't do that. Like, and I think this is a pretty compelling case where it's like, you could get people killed. You can right. start a war. Like what do you gain from it? And I'll give it to you later and it'll still be a great story. And everybody went along with it except
0: Jack Anderson,
1: Jack Anderson, another muckraking, um, larger than life um his ego was not small he had also broken a ton of big stories uh and he at that time decided he just felt like he decided in his mind that this was a boondoggle that the CIA spent hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars that had come from you know the a navy black budget and didn't work and why should he sit on it just because DCI tells him to right like you already had your chance and it didn't work so your case is not compelling. I hear you, but it's not compelling. And he told everybody.
0: And then everybody else had. There's no reason to keep people quiet anymore.
1: Yeah, Col- Colby carried a list in his wallet, actually, to, of the names of people he promised that he would tell. Like basically, and he kept his word. He said, you know, all, when the time comes, I will give you the story. And he, when it became clear that Anderson was going to do that, he called all those editors and said, "Hey, deal's off. Like, Anderson's going to blow it. You can run with your stories." Don't call me for comment. The CIA CIA will not talk about this again.
0: Well, I mean, these were massive front page stories. and You talk about CIA not talking about it. I think the Soviet response is one of the most interesting things here because you you refer back to the U-2 incident where Eisenhower clearly makes a mistake and kind of a mea culpa saying, you got us, it was actually a spy plane, where you'd think, oh, well, honesty is the best policy, (laughs) but not in a system like the Soviets where it was incredibly embarrassing for them to have an American spy plane, in this case the U 2, flying for so long over the Soviet Union without them being able to do anything about it.
1: Right. And of course, everybody knew it was, in, in, well, in the Soviet military, knew it was a spy. They knew it was flying over. They just couldn't get it, but the public didn't. Right. Know. And that's, yeah, well, Eisenhower's mistake was that he admitted it in a very public way that then the Soviets couldn't insist that they weren't aware of it, right? Like, I mean, they had been trying to shoot the thing down for months and months and months. They tried everything. And what you learn, what I learned through this is that, you know, there's a very um, intricate and sensitive diplomacy between the two sides where there are a, we're each aware of things that the other doing that may upset us and maybe cross some official or unofficial line of propriety or law, even law, mm. but we'll let it go. Because we can't stop it, or it already happened, because to make it public becomes more embarrassing. And once it's in public, then both sides have to get mad, and then that's when trouble happens, right? As long as it's back channel, behind the scenes, and we're saying, like, we're pissed about that, but if you don't talk about it, we won't talk about it. And just don't do it again, right? Right,
0: making a huge scene, even a public apology about, sorry we tried to steal your submarine probably wouldn't have gone over very well.
1: No, because, you know, what's the Soviet public or even those within their hierarchy who don't know that story? They'll be like, wait, you lost a submarine with yeah. ballistic How? First of all, how did you do that? Second of all, you let the Americans build a ship and park over it and steal it, and you were driving around it and you flew planes over. Like, wh- so many people screwed up yeah. that it's just an untenable situation for the Soviets. So from their perspective, the best outcome, well, at least Kiss- Kissinger and his counterpart determined though I'm not sure they ever had an over a conversation about this, they each kind of knew that the answer was, let's not talk about it. I know you're mad. You know, we will do our best to um, not embarrass you any further. Right. Um, trust us that we took care of, you know, anything sensitive in a, in a ma- respectful manner, which was later revealed. I'm um, talking about the so- remains of the Soviet sailors. It uh, is yeah, doing a full years.
0: burial at sea. Yeah, huh?
1: a proper Soviet burial at sea. But that, the way that we deal with this and don't start a war is we both shut up.
0: Well, and the CIA tried that until a r- young Rolling Stone reporter decided to start filing FOIA requests, which is really how we wrap this up. Because I think I've talked to journalists who have degrees from very good journalism schools. And know the phrase, the Glomar response, but have no idea why it's called that. And this brings Walt Lloyd back into the story because the FOIA request was problematic because most of the time, if you want to deny a FOIA request, you have to say, because of national security reasons, we can't give you this information. But if you admit you can't give these documents because of national security reasons, you're essentially confirming the story in the first place. Um that would be admitting these actually exist. Uh, and so Lloyd has yeah. the ingenious solution.
1: yeah, so this, this I mean the CIA policy basically became we don't talk about this. It didn't happen. I know it was in the media, but like this is that we will never say the word as in well. publicly. Mm-hmm. We will never talk about this for all intents and purposes. this never happened. Yes. and so when the FOIA request comes in, um, Warner again was chief legal counsel, had brought Walt into his department. In large part because of all the complicated legal things that had happened on Azorian. He had dealt with the SEC and tax collector. All kinds of things came up. He's like, here's a guy who knows how to deal with legal problems. So the CIA and all government agencies are bound by law to respond to FOIA requests. You have to either give the people, what the reporter, what or it doesn't have to be a reporter. It could be a citizen, the person what they're asking for, or... Don't give it to them and explain that you can't for national security reasons, or one of a number of reasons, one of which is national security. The CIA is also bound by its charter to not disclose sources and methods, and they decided that saying we can't give it to you because of national security reasons is basically admitting that it happened, we are not going to admit that it happened, we're stuck, what do we do? Um, So Walt went back to some of his other lawyers, and they talked about it briefly, and and. Someone you know said, "Well, so basically, well, the deal is we can't confirm it and we can't deny it, right?" And he's like, "That's yeah. it. <laughs> that's it, is. it. Yeah, we're gonna say we can't confirm or deny." Which today everyone's like, "Oh, please, that's like the oldest phrase in the book." Well, it's not. It comes. This is exactly where it started. So he takes it to Warner, who looks at it and says, "Yeah, I think that could work." And they take it to court, and it goes into a FISA court, so a secret court proceeding. A judge determines that. This is an acceptable answer um, that that rolling Stone reporter loses the case. And uh, thus begins the Glomar rule, the Glomar exemption, Glomarization, whatever you want to call it. You can count me among those journalists who's used that phrase in the past without ever questioning what it means. Um, I didn't know that. I mean, I I knew it before the book because I had listened to a radio lab about it. But it's not like a story that I think people use the term without knowing it. Yeah, it it comes from here. And there's a case going on in New York City right now with NYPD. Because I have a Google News Alert set up, of course, for Glomar. And I keep getting hits from the NYPD who are fighting a case that's being challenged because they use the Glomar rule. And the, the reporters are saying that is not an acceptable instance where you can use it.
0: And so just it showing the impact of of this mission and everything that are surrounding it on CIA itself. Of course, the CIA's very first tweet <laughs> was, we can neither confirm nor deny this is CIA's first which. Uh, you know, a lot of people got a chuckle with but didn't realize that it went directly back no. to a mission in the 1970s.
1: You know, and it's like we said at the beginning, it's it's a story that everybody – or not everybody. In the intelligence community, you're probably aware of it. You may know some parts of it. You, you may know all of it. But there's so many elements of it that uh, someone just told me that uh, in 2015 when the, um, the S&T put together a time capsule – for the five, they want to put five things in that represent the first 50 years of the history of the S and One of those things was a seal from this mission, basically saying, "This is one of the five greatest things we accomplished in the 50-year first 50 years of the S I'm assuming probably something from the U2 was there. Yeah. I mean, you can basically say Corona, U2, A12, maybe Ivy Bells, although I don't know whether Navy gets credit for that yeah. or not. And this, but um, yeah, it's a momentous operation in so many ways so you know there's a conversation debate rages still was it a success or not yeah it was a success in a lot of ways and certainly a historic momentous you know technology trickled out of this into a lot of areas too you know it impacted ship design and intelligence methods so much the Glomar exemption right like, yeah Nixon resigned while the Glomar was on station, right? right.
0: They they had a, a, a plaque, a sermon on a plaque to hand to them, and they couldn't because he was no longer president totally. after and, that. And it's yeah.
1: it's been suggested that one of, if not Ford's, first major foreign policy decision was, do we let this thing go forward or not? Yeah. By the way, there's a ship. He knew about it, but. So, yeah, so historic and crazy and truth is stranger than fiction in a lot of
0: ways. Again, we'd like to thank Movement Watches for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movement.com SpyCast. That's mvmt.com slash SpyCast. Well, the book is The Taking of K-129, How the CIA Used Howard Hughes to Steal a Russian Sub in the Most Daring Covert Operation in History. The author is Josh Dean. This book is out literally, if you're listening to this the day it posts, today at Post, Today. Uh, So go grab a copy. Josh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. We truly appreciate it.
1: It's fun. I love the show.
0: Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.